Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 13, 1912 in England, The Triangular Tournament. This is Part 2 of our episode covering the 1912 Triangular Tournament. Part 1 was released last week and covers the first three tests of the six that will be played. We resume with Australia on two wins and one draw. The Australians had three matches in the two weeks before their next test against the English in Manchester. Two draws against Leicestershire and Sussex sandwiched an eight-week loss to Hampshire. The match against Sussex was notable as, after McCartney hit 142 in two and a half hours, Ranjitsinji, who had last played tests against Australia in 1905, responded with 125. McCartney backed up his first innings performance with another 100 in the second. The sixth match of the triangular tournament and the second between England and Australia saw the English make two changes from the last time they faced Australia. Warner and Dean were out, replaced by Schofield Hay and Bill Hitch, both of whom Australia had faced before. The Australians made one change from their last appearance, with Emery coming in for minute. Once again, though, during this English summer, the rain intervened. Three days of rain preceded the start of the match, while showers continued the morning of delaying play. Eventually, the toss was made, with England winning and deciding to bat, with play commencing just before 2pm. Hazlitt bowled a maiden first over, whilst Whitty took up the attack at the other end. Rhodes cut one in the air to point before scoring, but the difficult chance was missed. With Hobbs, the openers began to build a partnership. The score reached 30 before Hobbs struck consecutive boundaries off Whitty. However, he was bowled soon after for 19 by the same bowler. In Whitty's next over, he bowled new batsman Spooner for one. The English were now two for 39. Fry then joined Rhodes. The two batted carefully for a time, with Whitty and Hazlitt demonstrating good control of line and length, but eventually the bowlers began to tire, as Gregory kept them on for over an hour. This allowed the batsmen to get more scoring opportunities, putting on a partnership of 44. Eventually, Gregory rested his openers, and this brought about the breakthrough, with Matthews having Fry caught for 19. Hearn joined Rhodes at 3 for 83, but struggled to find any timing. Rhodes was left to do the bulk of the scoring, which became easier when Emery was brought on, as the googly bowler bowled a series of long hops and full tosses that Rhodes was able to dispatch to the boundary, bringing up his half-century in the process. He dominated a 57-run stand with Hearn, who, after being dropped by Whitty at mid-on on one, could only manage nine before he was bowled by Hazlitt Yorker. Woolley made a quick 13 before Whitty claimed his wicket. Foster then joined Rhodes at 5 for 155. The two pushed on towards stumps, with Foster trying to hit everything to the boundary. This brought him unstuck on 13, when he skied a ball off Matthews, which was well caught by the bowler. Smith came to the crease and managed to see out the rest of the day. Rhodes remained not out 92, a masterful knock that had held the English innings together. Once again, persistent rain kept the players from the field, this time preventing play from starting before 5pm on day 2. Most of the interest surrounded Rhodes bringing up 100. However, without addition to his overnight score, he played Witty onto his stumps in his opening over. His 92 had included 8 boundaries, having batted for just over 4 hours. The remaining batsmen attempted to make quick runs, but the final 3 wickets could only add a further 18 between them. Hazlitt claimed all 3 of those to finish with 4 wickets, whilst his opening partner Witty took the same amount. The English therefore ended with a total of 203. The Australians still had 30 minutes to negotiate on the second day. Callaway and Jennings opened and made no errors in the 13 overs they faced, ending the day at done for 14. Cricket fans hoped for clear weather to see if a result could be achieved, and when people awoke on the third day, it seemed as if they'd got their wish. No rain had fallen, and the ground was prepared for an 11.30am start. However, just as the bell rang to commence play, drizzle began to fall. This got heavier over the course of the day, leading to the match being called off. The England-Australia portion of the tournament thus stood at nil-nil after two rain-affected games, with only the final match at the Oval to come. There was still one more Australia-South Africa test to be played, to take place in Nottingham. 
The one tour game the Australians had prior to that was against Derbyshire, which, for something different, was a rain-affected draw. Whilst the rain could be blamed for some of the Australians' poor performance in tour games to this point, the squad was lacking in cohesion and consistently embarrassed themselves. They set records for disorderly conduct and alcoholic consumption. On a trip to Ireland, the tour manager Crouch had to prevent the bar staff from selling his players any more alcohol, whilst their lack of social graces meant that they were effectively ostracised by their hosts. The inability of Gregory or Crouch to control or discipline the players' behaviour played a key part in the disintegration of standards on the tour, which impacted their playing ability. The South Africans made two changes from their last test. Mitchell dropped himself, with Tanker taking up the captaincy, while Schwartz, who was out of form, was left out. Beaumont and Snook returned to the side. Meanwhile, the Australians made one change, with Maine being replaced by Minute. Nottingham had experienced heavy rain over the previous week, and Trent Bridge was soaked. On the day of the game, though, whilst there was heavy cloud overhead, the rain stayed away, allowing play to begin on time. The heavy cloud would also prevent the pitch from drying too quickly, meaning it wouldn't be as dangerous for the batsmen. Therefore, Tanker decided to bat when he won the toss. Despite the game starting on a bank holiday, there was little interest from the public, reflecting the pall that had fallen over the tournament due to the poor form of the South Africans. The opening of the match didn't change anyone's opinions, as Taylor was bowled for two by Witty. However, Norse then combined with Tancred and began to grind down the Australians, taking few risks on a pitch that was currently placid. Gregory cycled through his bowling options, but the partnership held firm for 100 minutes, adding 77 runs in that time, before Tancred was caught off Matthews for 30. Faulkner joined Norse and took the total past 100, but Faulkner's poor form continued when he was caught for 15 off Emery. Llewellyn joined Norse, who made his way to 49. He spent a long time on that score before finally bringing up his half-century. He took his score onto 64 before finally being dislodged, bowled by Witty. He batted for two and a half hours and hit six boundaries in his vigil. The South Africans had some luck in that, whenever the sun threatened to make the pitch more treacherous, a passing shower would refresh the conditions. As such, they never lost clumps of wickets, although many batsmen still found it difficult to stay in for a long time. Llewellyn managed 12 before he was bowled by Emery. Stricker and Snook then combined with a score at 5 for 154. Stricker picked up where Norse had left off, while Snook was more adventurous. The two put on 42 runs before Snook was bowled by Callaway for 20. White was next in and helped take the total past 200. Stricker was then out for 37 with the total was on 225, whilst Beaumont followed for two soon after. However, Pegler joined Snook at 8 for 235 and was able to see out the last bit of play, taking the total to 266, with White on 30 and Pegler 16. More cloudy weather greeted the players on day two. Looking to get stuck into the Australians, the batsmen went after the bowling. The White-Pegler partnership took the total to 286 before Pegler was dismissed, a bowl by Hazlitt for 26. Last man Ward joined White, and the two took the total past 300. White brought up a half-century, whilst Ward punished some wayward bowling. Matthews eventually had Ward caught for 24, ending the innings, with White left not out 59. Witty, Hazlitt, Matthews and Emery each took two wickets as the South Africans posted 329, a total boosted by 38 extras, including 30 buyers. The sun began to come out as the Australian innings commenced. The roller helped calm the pitch somewhat, which gave the Australians some time to get settled. The first wicket came through batsman error, with Jennings being run out from mid-on for nine. McCarthy joined Callaway, and the two batted in their usual styles, with Callaway demonstrating obdurate defence, whilst McCartney played free-throwing strokes. The latter dominated a 42-run stand, including hitting a six, but was out for 34, edging a wide ball to slip off Llewellyn. This brought Bardsley in at two for 61. There was no further loss until the lunch break, with the total rising to 70. Once again, a shower of rain in the lunch break deadened the pitch. Following the resumption, the two batsmen continued to build the score. 
The total reached three figures before Callaway was dismissed, caught off Pegler, having made 37 in just over two hours. Gregory replaced him and scored a quick-fire 18 before Pegler bowled him. This brought Minnett in to join Bardsley at 4 for 127. Bardsley continued in imposing form, not giving any chances and raising a half-century. Just as he looked set to push on for a big score, he found himself run out by a brilliant bit of fielding, having made 56. Matthews then joined Minnett and the score was quickly raised to 199 before Minnett was out for 31, calling the boundary off Faulkner. This sparked a collapse as the Australians lost their last five wickets for only 20 runs as Faulkner and Pegler tore through the tail. Matthews was out for 21, whilst the rest posted single-figure scores as the Australians ended on 219. Pegler continues good form with four wickets, whilst Faulkner claimed three. The South Africans were in their best position of the series, taking a 110-run lead into their second innings. However, just as their innings was about to commence, another shower passed by, ending play for the day. Any hopes of a result were dashed on the third day, as rain fell all through the morning, drenching the ground so much that the match was declared a draw after the scheduled lunch break. This meant the Australian-South African portion of the triangular tournament ended in a 2-0 win for the Australians. South Africa would play their final test of the tournament at the Oval against England. Rain had drenched the ground the day before play. As in the previous test, with cloud cover but no rain, Tanker had won the toss and chose the bat, hoping the pitch would be placid. However, the South Africans collapsed, bowled out for 95, with only Taylor and Snook reaching double figures, whilst Barnes and Woolley took five wickets each. The English Cody managed 176 in reply, with Hobbs playing a masterful wet wicket innings in scoring 68, including hitting three consecutive boundaries off Faulkner. Faulkner was the pick of the bowlers though, taking 7 for 84, his best test figures. The South African second innings didn't fare much better than the first, with Barnes running through them to claim 8 for 29 to finish with 13 wickets for the match, bowling them out for 93. Only Norse provided resistance with a gutsy 42. The English only required 13 for victory, which they knocked off without loss. This saw the English take a clean sweep of their matches against South Africa, winning 3-0. Barnes took 34 wickets across these matches, more than half of the 60 South African wickets to fall. Whilst the South Africans had demonstrated improving test results over the last half of the 1910s, they had now gone one win and nine losses in their last 11 matches, showing a major decline in performance and making light of their claim to be equal to Australia and England. That said, they performed well in the tour games, only losing three matches outside of the tests and winning 13, which was a better result than Australia would achieve. In the tests, of those who played more than two of the matches, only Norse would average over 20 with the bat, whilst the bowling was dominated by Pegler, who took 29 wickets at 21, with Faulkner claiming 14 and Norse 13. This would mark the last time the Australians would face players such as Llewellyn and Faulkner in test matches. Llewellyn retired from first-class cricket at the end of the tournament. He was one of South Africa's first great cricketers who succeeded despite the racial prejudice against him, doing the double by scoring 10,000 runs and taking 1,000 wickets in first-class cricket, mainly for Hampshire, as well as featuring in 15 tests. He would continue in league cricket until 1938, when he was 62, and would pass away in 1964 at the age of 87. He remained South Africa's only test cricketer of colour until 1992, when Omar Henry made his debut. Faulkner will play one more test in 1924 against England, ending his 25 test career with a batting average of 40, as well as 82 wickets at 26, making one of the outstanding all-rounders of his day. Having served in the Boer War as a 19-year-old, he would go on to fight in World War I, winning awards for bravery. However, he would contract many bouts of malaria throughout the war, which impacted his cricket ability, although he did appear once famously against the 1921 Australian Ashes side in a tour game. He established a cricket school in London in 1925, the first of its kind, which helped produce many test cricketers, but struggled to turn a profit. 
Faulkner would end up committing suicide in 1930 at the age of 48. He was inducted into the International Cricket Hall of Fame in 2021. The build-up to the final Australia-England test was gaining momentum as, given both teams had won their series against South Africa and Australia-England currently stood at nil-nil, it was clear that the winner of the match would claim both the Ashes and the Triangular Tournament. As such, to avoid having the match spoiled by the weather, it was decided that we be played to a conclusion, like tests were in Australia at the time. The three lead-up matches for the Australians were all draws, during which Bardsley scored 200s and Maine won, whilst Hazlitt, McCartney and Witty all claimed five-wicket hauls. The Australians made one change to their side, bringing in extra batting in the form of Smith at the expense of Maine. From the last time they played Australia, the English made two changes, with Hay and Hitch both missing. In their place came Harry Dean and the victorious captain of the previous Ashes series, Johnny Douglas, for his first match of the tournament. As was tradition in 1912, rain delayed the start of play on the first day. When the skies cleared around midday, Fry won the toss and chose to bat on a slow pitch that was taking turn. Hobbs and Rhodes, as they had through most of the tournament, played the conditions masterfully, although Rhodes was missed on one by Matthews at short leg. Hobbs continued his fine season, driving confidently on the offside and picking up a couple of boundaries, dominating the scoring. Witty, Hazlitt, Matthews and McCartney were all tried, but no breakthrough could be achieved before lunch, with Hobbs moving to 42 and Rhodes 19. Resuming the score on 65, the total began to rise rapidly, particularly off the bowling of Matthews. Rhodes hit him straight for an all-run five, whilst Hobbs hit four, then three in consecutive balls. This took Hobbs past his half-century, but he was out when the partnership just passed 100 to McCartney, who was getting prodigious turn off the track. He batted for just under two hours in compiling 66, hitting four boundaries. New batsman Spooner could only manage the single before becoming McCartney's second victim. Fry joined Rhodes at two for 109. The bowling, headed by McCartney and Hazlitt, was extremely tight, with only 18 runs coming in 45 minutes. Fry never looked comfortable and, after surviving a stumping opportunity, was caught at mid-on off Witty. Four runs later, Rhodes fell one short of a half-century, being bowled by a minute, having batted for over three hours. The English were now 4 for 131 as Hearn joined Woolley. Hearn could only manage one run, caught it slip off a rising witty delivery. The English had now lost five wickets for 37 runs, going to T at 5 for 144. Woolley resumed after T, joined by Douglas, who received a rousing reception for his first test of the season. However, Woolley was the batsman that encouraged the crowd the most. He found the boundary often, mostly with a cut shot, and quickly took the total past 150. Douglas provided sole support, sharing a 36-run stand before he was dismissed for 18, LBW to Witty. Foster came in next and provided similar support, with Woolley now starting to add powerful drives to his game. The total went past 200 before Foster was bowled by a minute for 19. Stumps were approaching, with Woolley getting close to his 50. He brought it up with four boundaries in the final two overs, getting to 62 before he was trapped LBW by a minute on what ended up being the last ball of the day. He batted for two hours and hit 11 boundaries, taking the English to 8 for 233 at the end of play. Another storm drenched the ground overnight, leading play on day two to be delayed until 1pm. Once the play commenced, the final two wickets could only add 12 runs before England was all out. Witty and Minnick claimed one of these each to both finish with four wickets for the innings. With a total of 245, lunch was then taken. Upon the resumption, Gregory opened with Callaway. The Australian total was only on nine when the first wicket fell, with Gregory caught it short leg off Barnes for one. McCartney came in at three, but soon after the rain fell again, sending the players from the field. The game didn't resume until after 5pm. The score rose to 19 before McCartney was out, Bolt playing across the line to Barnes for four. This brought Bardsley in to join Callaway. 
the two best Australian batsmen of the Test summer lived up to their reputations, defending the good balls and putting away the bad ones. Barnes caused some trouble, but the two managed to take the total to 51 without further loss at stumps. Despite the rain, large crowds, the biggest of the series, had attended the match throughout, and the third day was no exception. Callaway and Bardsley started brightly, with Callaway hitting a straight drive for four before a streaky shot through the slips for the same result, whilst Bardsley found a boundary off Barnes. When the score reached 76, Barnes swapped ends, with Woolley coming on as well as the pitch beginning to deteriorate. This eventually brought the breakthrough as Woolley trapped Callaway LBW for 43, having shared a 71-run stand with Bardsley. This dismissal prompted a spectacular collapse. Jennings and their minute were out for ducks, both to Woolley. Bardsley followed soon after, bowled behind his legs by Barnes for 30. The Australians had lost 4 for 6 to be 6 for 96. Smith played a couple of good shots to take the total past 100, but was then caught behind for 6, becoming Woolley's fourth victim. Barnes then claimed Matthews for 2 and Whitty for a duck to lead the Australians at 9 for 104. A passing shower sent the players from the field for a short time, and upon the return the final wicket added 7 before car kick was caught off Woolley, ending the innings. Barnes and Woolley had both claimed 5 wickets as the Australians lost 8 for 21 to be all out for 111. The English lead of 134 was worth even more given the nature of the pitch. The Australians started well with the ball, however, with a fast one from Woody bowling Rhodes to four, while Spooner was then caught at slip for a golden duck. Fry came in and survived the hat-trick ball, but the English were now two for seven as rain once again sent the players from the field. The rain allowed the pitch to settle somewhat, and the batsmen took advantage. Hobbs, who had witnessed the wickets from the other end, placed some magnificent drives off Woody, including one that landed in the pavilion for six. He moved into the 20s, going past 2,000 test runs, the first Englishman to do so, before straining his thigh. He struggled on until he reached 32, before being caught at point off Witty. Woolley arrived, but couldn't repeat his first innings effort, bowled for four by Hazlitt. Hearn then joined Fry at 4.56, with the pair adding eight runs before bad light ended play for the day, with the English taking a lead of 198 into the fourth day. The Australians started poorly in their hunt for wickets offering many bad balls that were easy to score off at the beginning of the day. Resuming on 17, Fry held up an end as Hearn attacked, striking three boundaries off Matthews. Matthews was replaced by Hazlitt, who struck immediately, having Hearn caught at short leg for 14. This brought Douglas in at 5 for 91 to join Fry, who had moved into the 30s. The pitch was becoming more treacherous, but the Australians lacked a bowler of the quality of the legends of the past, such as Spotheth, Turner or Trumbull, to exploit it. McCartney was the most dangerous bowler, but couldn't control his length allowing for pressure-relieving scoring opportunities. Whilst the scoring was slow, lack of consistency from the bowlers allowed the total to move onwards, with Fry heading past 50. They managed to go to lunch at 5 for 149, with Fry on 65 and Douglas 17. Following the break, little changed as the two batsmen grinded the Australians out of the game. They batted together for almost two hours, putting on 78 runs before Hazlitt broke the partnership, having Fry caught at slip for 79. This sparked a collapse, with Douglas being trapped LBW for 24, while Smith, Barnes and Dean all fell for ducks. Hazlitt claimed the final five wickets to fall for a single run in only 17 balls, an extraordinary spell. This gave him overall figures for the innings of 7 for 25, whilst Witty claimed the other three. The English finished on 175, sending the Australians a target of 310 for victory. In some ways, Hazlitt did the English a favour dismissing them so quickly they were able to bowl to the Australians when the pitch was still treacherous. This played out immediately as the most resolute Australian batsman, Callaway, was caught for a duck off Barnes, with Douglas taking four attempts to complete the catch. McCartney and Jennings then combined for a time, with Jennings striking Barnes at two boundaries whilst McCartney took to both Barnes and Woolley. The two put on 46 before their fortunes changed, 
First, Jennings skied a ball from Woolley and was caught by Fry for 16. Whilst in the next over, McCartney was clean bowled by Dean for 30. One run later, Bardsley was superbly run out by a direct hit from a cover point by Hobbs for a duck. The Australians were now 4 for 47, and things did not improve. Woolley and Dean ran through the rest of the batsmen, with all out for single-figure scores, as the Australians collapsed to be all out for 65, losing their last nine wickets for 19 runs. Woolley finished with 10 for the match, after claiming a second Pfeiffer, whilst Dean had his best test figures with four wickets. The English emerged 244-run victors, winning both the Ashes and the Triangular Tournament. Whilst they had benefited somewhat from the weather, overall England were the worthy winners of the tournament. Across the tests, they had four players average over 30. Hobbs led the way with 387 runs at 48, whilst Rhodes, Woolley and Spooner each put in strong performances, although Spooner scored most of his runs against South Africa. Barnes was a standout bowler, taking 39 wickets at an average of 10. Whilst most of these came against South Africa, weather prevented him from having much of a bowl in the first two tests against Australia, and he showed his skill with five wickets in the third match. Strong support came from Woolley, Foster and Dean, who each claimed 10 wickets or more, with Woolley's 17 wickets only costing nine runs apiece. This season marked the final test for many English players. One of those was Charles Fry. 40 years old in 1912, he'd had a varied sporting career, including featuring for England once in football, but cricket was where he was best known. He averaged 32 across 26 tests with 200s, although he would have played much more if not for business interests and injury. He was a colossus of county cricket, scoring 30,000 runs and an average better than 50 across a 30-year career. He doubled in politics and was once even offered the throne of Albania. Later in life, he became a respected commentator for the BBC, passing away in 1956 at the age of 84. Another who played their last test was Frank Foster. In his 11 tests, he provided a great foil to the bowling of Barnes, but a motorcycle accident during the First World War curtailed his cricket career, despite only being 23 when he played his last test. For the Australians, too much was left to too few. Callaway and Bardsley were the standout batters in the tests, both scoring over 300 runs at averages of over 60. McCartney provided good support with 200 runs at 30, but the rest of the batting was below par, particularly on the wet wickets that abounded. As for the bowlers, Witty claimed 25 wickets at 19, with Hazlitt next best with 17. Matthews and McCartney both claimed 10 or more, but the inability of the Australian bowlers to exploit the damp pitches like their English counterparts ended up being a key difference in the series. There were still six tour matches to play out for the Australians. They lost two and drew the remaining four. Overall, it was one of the worst performances in the history of Australian touring sides, winning only nine of their 38 matches, six of those wins coming in the first month of the tour. Across the first-class matches, Bardsley and McCartney both averaged well over 40 and scored just shy of 2,000 runs, but no one else passed the 1,000 mark. As for the bowlers, Witty took 109 wickets across the tour, with Hazlitt trailing him with 96. The Australians, minus Bardsley, McCartney and Hazlitt, then travelled to North America where they faced teams from the United States and Canada. Further damaging their reputation, they lost the opening first-class game to Philadelphia by two runs, with 38-year-old Bart King arguably the best cricketer the United States has produced, taking nine wickets for the match. The Australians managed to get some pride back by winning the return game by 45 runs. After all their efforts to gain control of tours, the 1912 visit ended up being a financial disaster for the Board of Control. After providing the players with their agreed monetary share, the Board suffered a loss of £1,286, around $230,000 in 2023 money. Tour manager Crouch submitted a report scathing of the team's behaviour, this prompted the board to call upon Gregory, Karkeek, Matthews and Smith to explain themselves. The first three players did, but Smith declined to attend. The deliberations were kept secret, but many players had their cards marked never to tour a game. 
Smith was blacklisted based on his refusal to explain himself and never played first-class cricket again. The tour marked the end for many of the players in Test cricket. Four of the squad played their only tests on this tour, whilst only four of the squad would play Test cricket in later years. One of those who played their final test was Bill Whitty. His 14 tests had seen him claim 65 wickets at 21, 50 of which came against South Africa in only eight matches. Only 26 in 1912, he would play on for South Australia until 1926, taking almost 500 first-class wickets. Another to play his last test was Minute. Also only 26, he turned his attention to his medical practice and didn't play first-class cricket after the war. Jimmy Matthews, who remains the only bowler to take two test hat-tricks on the same day, also didn't play after the war, becoming the groundskeeper at Williamstown Cricket Club. The other major end was for Sid Gregory. No one had played more than his 58 tests to that stage, or had been on as many as his eight Ashes tours. Unfortunately, he would go down as one of the worst captains Australia has had. The third of the famous Gregory family to play Test cricket, he would not be the last, as his nephew Jack would continue the family tradition in the 1920s. Sid would live on until 1929, when he would die at the age of 59. The triangular tournament was an ambitious failure, with no one keen to repeat it any time soon. Test cricket remained a bilateral affair, with tournament play only coming back for the men with the advent of the one-day International World Cup in 1975, although this had been preceded by the first Women's World Cup in 1973. The next time a test-based tournament was attempted were the two editions of the Asian Test Championship between 1998 and 2002. It wasn't until the establishment of the World Test Championship in 2019, more than a century after the triangular tournament, that an ICC multi-team test tournament would take place, with New Zealand winning the inaugural final in 2021. Despite the losses both on and off the field, the Board of Control had come out of the events leading up to 1912 in a strong position, having reduced player power to a minimum, allowing them to take a firm grasp of cricket in Australia. They hoped to use this advantage to rebuild Australian cricket where they could once again defeat the old enemy England. However, with the advent of a real enemy to fight, matters of cricket would fade into the background for a time as the coming of the First World War would mark the end of this chapter in the history of Australian cricket. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.